Bibles to James chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. In your pew Bible, that's on page 854. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any one of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But he who asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. The man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and unstable in all he does. Hear the word of the Lord. At this time, the children in grades one through three are dismissed to Children's Church. Join me in prayer as we begin a new sermon series this morning in the book of James. Be open to that book. We'll be looking at this in a moment. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the word of God that we hold in our hands. We thank you for the spirit uh, who guides us into all truth. And we pray, Lord, that... Uh, we would be good listeners of what the Spirit of God wants to say to our lives this morning. Where there needs to be encouragement, bring encouragement. Where there needs to be perhaps a, a correction, show us that. Where there needs to be, for all of us, a training in righteousness, lead us there. We thank you in advance what you're going to do, because you promise that as your word goes out, it will not return to you void. We cling to that this morning, once again, in Jesus' name. Amen. Story is told, it's a mystery story of a man who was held in solitary confinement in a dark prison cell. The only thing he had in his possession to occupy his mind was one single marble. That's it. So what he would do to kind of pass time is he would throw this marble against the walls and then listen with enjoyment as this marble bounced and then rolled around the room. He would then crawl around in the darkness to locate his precious marble. And this would go on for hours. The marble was all he had. One day, however, as he was tossing his marble around, he threw it upward, but it never came down. He didn't hear the sound of the marble bounce or roll on the floor. It was dead silence. The disappearance of the marble troubled him deeply. He was so disturbed by his inability to explain the marble's disappearance that he went berserk. He pulled out all of his hair, and he died. When the authorities came to remove his body from the cell, one guard noticed something caught in a huge spider's web in the upper corner of the room. 
That's right. That's strange, he thought. I wonder how a marble got up here. There are situations in life that don't make sense. There are happenings in the world that that seem to have no answer. Why is this happening? What am I supposed to do? Are among the many questions we ask in such a time as loss or, or trials and troubles. I mean, how can hard times be of any benefit to our lives? How can there be any profit in pain? Back a few weeks ago, as we looked at Hebrews chapter 12 in our series on the promises of God, we learned that God's sure path to all he wants to give us is through sheer pain and not around it. It was a great reminder to us that God never wastes our pain. Well, we return to that subject again this morning as we begin a new sermon series in the book of James. And as we leave the series on armed with God's promises and begin our new study in the book of James, it is fitting to find yet another promise of God. And the passage we're going to be looking at in James chapter 1 makes for a nice, smooth transition from one series to the next. And so look with me at the book of James. I want you to turn there with me to the book of James. It's right after Hebrews. It's towards the back of your Bible. But I want you to follow along as I, want, I read verse 1 again in, in the book of James as we start this new series, Faith in Action. Verse 1, it says, James, a servant, or more accurately, a bondservant. A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. The writer is James, that's obvious, he tells us. And it's commonly believed to be James the brother or half-brother of Jesus. This James was also the leader of the Jerusalem church. You can see that in Acts, I believe it's chapter 15, and maybe chapter 12 too, if my, member, my memory serves me correctly. He was a leader of the Jerusalem church. He was a brother of Jesus. Yet he does not refer to himself as the son of Mary and Joseph. He does not refer to himself here as as the brother of Jesus or the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church. But he refers to himself, how? As a bondservant of Jesus, of God. A bondservant. That's a person who is deprived of all personal freedom and totally under the authority and control of his master. James' devotion and loyalty was to Christ and to him alone. File that away. And as the heading indicates, he's writing to the 12 tribes who were scattered. Uh, These are Jewish believers who who are young in their faith, who were scattered outside of Palestine because of persecution. And James writes to these troubled hearts that were in need of some hope and encouragement as these trials had the potential to shipwreck them. And what these persecuted young believers need is not a doctrinal treatise, but some practical manual for living the Christian life. Oh, that's not to say that practical living and doctrine are at odds with each other, but to say that doctrine without feet to it leads to an inauthentic faith. And that really 
is the whole point of this letter from James. I mean, you can't work your way through this book without asking, is my faith genuine? Is my faith genuine? You see, saving faith is a faith that works. It's a faith in action. A faith that is real works practically in one's life. We're going to see in the book of James one test after another by which we can determine the genuineness of our faith. How genuine is your faith, loved one? This book shows us how to have a radical living hands-on faith in a fallen world. And James comes right out of the gates and he says in verse 2 of James chapter 1, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Notice there it's not if we have trials, but when we have trials. They will come. They'll come in many forms. And James says here, consider it pure joy. When trials come into your life, James says, consider it pure joy. (laughs) Has James lost his mind? I mean, has he spent too much time in his office? Has he lost touch with the congregation? Has he lost touch with the real world? I mean, come on, James, get real. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of, of many kinds. Yeah, right. Normal people don't enjoy trials. Normal people do everything possible to avoid troubles in life. Consider it pure joy. Who in their right mind can be joyful when trials hit? The answer, verse 3. Because you know You know, underline, you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, trials have the potential to bring us to the place where we will be lacking in nothing. That is what God wants for our lives. To that end, he's moving us and he's growing us. You see, the joy isn't And that we are to enjoy trials. The joy is in what we know. It is in what we know about trials and tests of life. James is not saying here, fake it. He describes joy as being pure, whole, thorough, real. He's not suggesting we deny the pain, we deny the trouble. We're not to pretend that hurt doesn't exist. Oh, isn't it just lovely? I lost my job. Praise God. Oh, I've just been robbed. Oh, how happy I am. Praise God. Those people make me kind of nervous. There's something not right. The joy isn't in the trial. It is in knowing what the trial can produce in my life. The thought behind the word consider in verse 2. It's not an attitude of resignation. It indicates a decisive action. It's to make a decision regarding that difficulty. We could translate it this way. Make up your mind. Make up your mind to regard trials as something for my growth and God's glory. What is he saying? He's saying consider hard times an opportunity to grow mature in our faith. He says, choose joy because you know that you will become a complete Christian when this trial is is completed 
in our lives. He's saying you are privileged people that God has allowed you to experience this trial. Now that all sounds good on paper. It's so difficult to follow when tough times come. Oh, we can throw it around to others when they're going through it. Consider it pure joy. You're facing this trial. And then what's in our life? Ooh, I don't know about that. I mean, what if, you're, what if you're thinking differently about your trials right now? You're not looking at it that way. What if you're struggling to get that joy thing that, that James mentions here? What if you're having a hard time buying what James is saying? What then? What are we to do if in this process we don't know how to meet this trouble? James says, let me tell you what to do. Let me tell you what to do. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. I mean, I'm going to come back to this passage next week and focus on a faith that perseveres or endures. That's a genuine faith, a faith that perseveres and endures in the midst of trials. I'm going to come back to that next week. But for this week, I want to address this matter of what we are to do in that period of time before perseverance has completed its work. What are we to do in that period of time before perseverance has completed its work? And that brings us to verses 5 through 8. Now, there are three questions that jump out of this in verses 5 through 8. It's not original with me, but this serves as our outline this morning. Not original with me. You can pretty much assume if it's really good, it's not original with me. (laughs) There's three questions. Three questions. First of all, what do we need? What do we need? Secondly, what should we do? And thirdly, what will we find? What do we need? What should we do? What will we find? Those are the three questions we find here uh, from verses 5 through 8. Well, first of all, what do we need? One word, wisdom. Wisdom. Verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Now, many have quoted this verse uh, here, verse 5, when looking for a job. Many, many have quoted this verse when raising our children or in face with a decision in our marriage. Perhaps you've quoted this verse when choosing a college to attend or when church leaders are, are facing a significant matter in the life of the church or, or the many other issues that confront us. Now, now, that's fine, for it certainly is an absolute truth which applies to the decisions of life. But note this. Note this, verse 5 is after verse 4 and before verse 6. Now, that's profound, isn't it? (laughs) You're saying, tell me, pastor, you have more than that this morning. (laughs) But we need to understand this contextually and specifically, for it is wisdom directly tied to what James has just said about trials. James has just told us that this is what trials will produce in your life, maturity and completeness. Well, what is it that we need so that we can have that kind of perspective and attitude? What do we need more than anything else? Wisdom. Now, I wonder out loud with you, why wisdom? Why not ask God for strength? Why didn't James say, ask God for deliverance, ask God for grace, or ask God for power? The one we never want to pray, ask God for patience. 
Why didn't James say, ask God for some of these things? Why did James choose wisdom above all other virtues? Why do we need wisdom when we're going through troubles? What is this wisdom that James is speaking about? Now, now wisdom is not cognitive only. It is moral. It is moral. It is not what you know. It is your belief system put into practice. And the world has it all backwards. They equate intelligence with wisdom. <laughs> Intelligent people are not necessarily the wisest people. You might say, yeah, on the contrary. The world replaces wisdom with education. Education is not the answer. It's not the answer to premarital sex. Education is not the answer to AIDS. It's not the answer to drunk driving. Education is not the answer to bullying and domestic violence and all the other things we're told it is the answer to. We have enough information to resolve all of those issues if that is all we needed. What is missing? Wisdom. Wisdom. More than that, wisdom of God. Our culture is fat on information, but thin on wisdom. Wisdom is not just knowledge. It is know-how. Biblical wisdom is the ability to see things from God's perspective and to apply knowledge in practical ways. Wisdom is information God supplies turned into action. It is acting in the light of God's revelation of himself. It is living God's way in God's worlds. Wisdom is the God-given ability to see life as God perceives it. It's different than knowledge. Wisdom is knowing how to put knowledge into practice. Warren Worsby says it this way. He says, knowledge is the ability to take things apart, while wisdom is the ability to put them together. Alistair Begg defined the wisdom spoken here as the endowment of heart and mind which is needed for right conduct in life. I mean, why is it that the same trial can make one person bitter and another person better? What makes the difference? Inner resources. It's the wisdom of God provided for us that we can draw upon that when everything around us is falling apart. It is wisdom that sees us to God's desired end. And your response and my response to trials is directly determined by our understanding of God and what he is after for our life. Wisdom will see it. Relying on our own understanding will not. Wisdom will keep us from going berserk when we lose our marble, or all our marbles for that matter, and when answers are absent and God seems silent. If we had a profit from pain, we're going to need wisdom. We're going to need wisdom. That naturally leads to the second question, what should we do? What should we do? Well, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should what? Ask God. That sounds simple enough. Notice that the asking is predicated upon recognizing the need. We all lack wisdom, particularly when we wonder what to do in the midst of trials. The word lack there 
is a banking term meaning a deficit or a shortfall. We all have a wisdom deficit. This country has a wisdom deficit bigger than financial deficit. The question is, are you in a tough spot right now? Have you paused to ask God for wisdom? What does that suggest? It suggests that I admit that I need it. See, we all tried to, 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 to hide our lack of wisdom. I got this. I'm all set. I don't need that. I can handle it. Like the man who bought a yacht. His wife was nervous because he had no experience in sailing whatsoever. But he had confidence that he could handle it. And so for weeks, he practiced in the harbor before taking it out to sea. Finally, he talked his nervous wife into getting on the yacht with him. Gingerly, she stepped aboard. Out into the harbor they headed, and he tried to put her mind at ease. He said, honey, look, I practiced enough in this harbor to know where every rock is. I know where every rock is. I know where every reef is. I know where every sandbar is. Relax. And at that very moment, a huge hidden rock beneath the surface made a large crunching sound from stem to stern. <laughs> he said with a sheepish grin, there, there, there's one of them going by right now. <laughs> We try and navigate it on our own, and we can't. Listen, you can't be a proud person and a wise person at the same time. Our pride prevents us from admitting we are weak. We don't know where all the rocks are, that we are powerless to do anything about the situation. And that is where we must be if we ever stand a chance of making it through this struggle. See, will you admit, will you admit you lack wisdom, and then ask God for it for your situation right now. Verse 6 instructs us on how to ask. How to ask, verse 6. But when we ask, or when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. The one who doubts is compared to the waves of the sea. And the image, I believe, is not of the normal pattern of waves rushing shoreward as much as a surging, violent motion of the sea. It was used in ancient literature, these words, this phrase, was used in ancient literature to speak of change and instability, to speak of a raging storm. A doubting person is one who is all over the place spiritually. Young people, don't hook up your life with someone like that. One who doubts is spiritually seasick, and he makes everyone sick around him. One moment they're up, centered on God. The next they're down, centered on the world. And up and down they go. When it speaks of one who doubts... It's not referring to those honest doubts we all have at one time or another. James is something else in mind. And we're clued into that because in verse 8, in verse 8, James speaks of this person as double-minded. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. To be double-minded, not only two-minded, but, but more literally, it's to be two-souled. And I can't help but think of John Bunyan's character in Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Facing Both Ways. <laughs> That's double-minded. That's the picture here. Scientists once studied a snake that was double-minded. It was born with two heads. 
Each head had a mind of its own and would try to control the body. One moment it would crawl one way, and then the other moment it would take over, the other mind would take over and the snake would crawl the other way in the completely opposite direction. It was truly double-minded. To be double-minded is to have a conflict in loyalties. I'm going to follow God here. No, I'm not. I'm going to follow over here because I think I like this one better. That's double-minded. Mr. Facing both ways. It's to say yes to God one minute and then yes to that which is anti-God. To doubt is to question whether or not you really want to follow what he tells you to do. It describes the one whose prayer and actions are at odds with each other. You know, there are people who come to me for advice who really don't want to do what I tell them. I know, that surprises you, doesn't it? You know people like that. Kind of like the man who prayed, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Lord, I do want to stop, not today. Let me enjoy this weekend first. Let me have this experience with this person one more time. Pastor, what is it that I should do? Stop living with a person you're not married to. I don't want to do that. Then why did you come to me? Seriously, what did you think I was going to say? Quit going to that place where you stumble. Start hanging out with those people who are just causing you to, to go in the wrong direction. Love your spouse. Go make it right with that person. No, don't do that. You know the saying, the trouble with good advice is that it usually interferes with your plans. And James's point is, when you go to God and ask for wisdom... Go with an attitude of acceptance of what he wants to give you, the good gift of wisdom. We need to ask in an attitude of trust. We should ask in all honesty and without hypocrisy. Are you single-minded in your loyalty to the Lord? Are you seeking his guidance in the midst of your trial, or are you wavering between what he requires and your own way of doing things? Are you praying one thing and playing another? Are you playing games with God? Do you go to him asking for wisdom when his wisdom says sever that relationship or that this is in and this is out? Do you then say, no, 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 I don't want to do that? Is that how you're going to God? What will you find? Third question. What will you find? Well, he has both a negative answer and a positive answer. The negative answer, negative answer says... If you go to God asking for wisdom, but you're living a life of duplicity and have no intention of following what he tells you, then you will find zilch. Verse 7 says it frankly. That man, double-minded man, that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. There is a coming to God that results in receiving absolutely nothing from God. I don't know about you, but that was a sobering thought to me this week. Where are those times in which I have gone to God in prayer, not really wanting his wisdom, but wanting his blessing on what I want to do, and I just walk away empty? Where are those times where I go to God trying to ride two horses at the same time? I want something my way, and I'm asking for God's way. What will I find? Nothing. 
That's the negative side of this, but the positive side, on the other hand, is when we come to God in honesty, when we come to God in sincerity, what will we find? When we come to God with our doubts and trusting ourselves to him, knowing that we need him and his wisdom to see us through it, the promise is that the wisdom, this wisdom will be given to us. What is God's response to our request for wisdom? Let me read verse 5 again. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and will be given to him. What a promise. What do we find when we come to God again and again and again asking for wisdom? As the kids began school this week, I had my own flashbacks to my school days. It wasn't a fun time. My mind went to seventh grade. Now you know it wasn't a fun time. One of my most difficult subjects was science. Matter, molecules, density, classification schemes. I I didn't get any of that. I just couldn't get it. And my science teacher didn't have any patience for someone like me who couldn't figure it out. So when I would go to her desk and ask for help, her body language and even words at times said to me, You again, Mr. Green. You again. But then there was this French teacher who patiently walked me through the botching of the French language. (laughs) Not so good in languages. I had to go to her many times with the same question, and I never sensed from her, you again? That's what you need help with. Try it this way. Say this word. This is how it goes together. At times, this image of the science teacher comes to mind when I go to God again and again, asking for the same thing, asking for wisdom. I figure God is saying, you again? Can't you get this right, Pastor? How many times will you ask me for the same thing? God is not like this lousy teacher who is unapproachable and put out by your asking. No, he gives generously to all without finding fault. Does he chide us for coming to him again? Does he remind us of all our failures and faults? Is he disgusted with us for having to ask? I mean, is that your idea of God? Is it your idea of God as one who gives, but he does so reluctantly and begrudgingly and reminding us as he gives all that is wrong with you? Is your image of him as one who scolds you for asking because because he's given you enough gifts while you're coming and asking again? God is generous in his giving of wisdom. It is his practice to give how? Generously, not you again. The thought behind this word generous here is singleness or God's undivided, unwavering intent. He gives without reservation. It is in contrast to the double-minded man spoken of in verse 8. He gives generously to all without finding faults. In other words, he won't put you down. He won't demean you. We won't experience divine irritation. Wisdom is what we need. We should then ask, what will we find is a God who gives generously without finding fault. What we will find is a God who wants to give and just waiting for us to ask someone Describe God's generosity as a pitcher tilted toward his children, just waiting to be poured out. Just waiting to be poured out. And the parched, 
on the trial-parched landscape of our lives, if we will but ask, waiting, tilted. What struggle are you going through right now? What trial, what loss, what pain, what distress has visited your life? How can you meet that trial victoriously and get from it all you need for Christian health and growth? You need wisdom. Recognize you need it. Ask God for it. Work through any misperceptions you might have of a reluctant, stingy God and truly believe he wants to pour out that wisdom to overflowing in your life. There's nothing in God that keeps him from giving on his side of things. And if we are to benefit from pain and trials and loss, we will need to ask for God's perspective. Wisdom gives us that. We will need to ask him for help in the face of troubles. Wisdom helps us understand how to use these painful circumstances for our good, for the benefit of others, for the glory of God. And the comfort will come in knowing that God has a purpose in it. And wisdom will aid us in not wasting the opportunities God is giving us to mature. I mean, it's no wonder James put such a high premium on wisdom. The events in our lives, folks, are not neutral. They are God-given opportunities to gain wisdom. Wisdom turns our pain into profit. God's picture, brimming with wisdom, is tilted over us. It's tilted over us. Will we ask? Will we ask believing? I mean, do you really want it? I know I've used this story before, but it's very appropriate and fitting for this whole subject this morning. It's told of a proud man, a proud man who went to Socrates asking for wisdom. He walked up to the muscular philosopher and said, Oh, great and wise Socrates, I come to you for wisdom. Socrates recognized a pompous numbskull when he saw one, so he led the young man through the streets to the sea and chest deep into water. Then he asked, what is it you want? Wisdom, O wise Socrates, said the young man with a smile. And Socrates put his strong hands on the man's shoulders and pushed him under the water. Thirty seconds later, Socrates led him up. What is it you want, he asked again. Wisdom, the young man sputtered. Oh, great and wise Socrates. And Socrates crunched him under the water again. 30 seconds passed, 35 seconds, 40 seconds. And Socrates led him up, and the man was gasping. What is it you want? Between heavy, heaving breaths, the fellow wheezed. Wisdom, oh, wise and wonderful. And before the young man can even finish his words, Socrates jams him under the water again. Forty seconds pass, fifty seconds, and he lifts him back up. What is it you want? Air, the young man screeched. I need air. And Socrates said, when you want wisdom as you've just wanted air, then you will find it. Wisdom's for our taking. The question is, how badly, how badly do we want it? How badly do we want it? Let's pray. God, you know what is in the hearts of your people here. Obviously, 
far better than I do. You know where we may be lacking understanding or trying to find understanding of some situation in our life? And I pray that 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 individual would come to you like that man finally realizing how much he needed air and say, I need wisdom. Try to do it myself. I've gone to everybody but you, Lord. Now I need to go to you. Whatever it is, God, it brings us to that place where we're on our knees crying out for you to give us wisdom is a good place. Because then you're ready to pour it out on us generously. May we receive that wisdom as we live day by day in your presence and in need of you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.